Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, April the 15th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report, and we'll uh, feature dispatches uh, on the clashes between two uh, military structures inside the Republic of Sudan. Ethiopia is continuing with this construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project. We'll have details on that. Muslims in Ghana are expressing their solidarity with Palestine. And the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, has announced another advanced missile test. In the second hour, we look in depth at the origins and developing crisis in the Republic of Sudan, where the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces are engaged in fierce battles for control of key areas of the country. We will provide an update on the reinstallation of two African-American Tennessee House representatives by the local authorities in Nashville, along with Memphis. Finally, we listened to a section of a briefing from the South African Communist Party on their recent Central Committee meeting inside the country. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the orchestra Bob from the West African state of Senegal. Uh, let's listen in. Thank you. 
toi qui m'avais dit que le ciel serait toujours bleu. Pourtant tu y es parti combat. Oh 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 combat. Oh 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 combat. Oh 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 oh
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was, of course, uh, the music uh, of uh, the Baobab uh, Orchestra uh, from uh, the West African state of uh, Senegal. And, of course, uh, we're here uh, at uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and, of course, uh, Today is Saturday, uh, April the uh, 15th, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story, of course, deals with the rapidly developing security situation in the Republic of Sudan. The head of the Sovereign Council, Abdel Fattah el-Bahan, said he was surprised by the attack of the rapid support forces on his house in Khartoum. Fighting uh, flared up uh, in the Sudanese capital between the National Army and the paramilitary forces on Saturday morning as the two sides traded accusations over who started the hostilities. In statements to Al Jazeera TV, Al Bahan and his rival leader of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohammed Hamdan Daglo Ahmedi, uh, sought to clear themselves of the political responsibility for the fighting that erupted in the country. In the afternoon, Al-Bahan spoke from an unknown location in Khartoum to the Doha-based TV station. He appeared with Shams al-Din Kabashi in a command room uh, supervising military operations. According uh, to the commander-in-chief of the army, the rapid support forces were the ones who started shooting as they attacked the army in the sports city area south of Khartoum. I was surprised when the rapid support forces attacked my house at 9 a.m., adding that all of the strategic facilities of the Armed General Command and the Republican Palace are under the control of the government uh, forces. And uh, the two uh, rival military leaders are ready to resolve the crisis that erupted between them following the deployment of militia forces in Maui in northern Sudan. That's according to uh, three mediators. Sudanese political forces called to avoid uh, military escalation between the Sudan armed forces and the rapid support forces when the latter deployed militiamen at a site near the military air base of the army and dispatched a large number of its elements in the capital of Khartoum. Leaders of three armed groups, signatory of the Juba Peace Agreement, launched a mediation to calm the situation and prevent military confrontation. In statements issued uh, on Thursday and Friday, Malik Agar, Amini Manawi, and Jibril Ibrahim announced that they had met uh, for the second time with the RSF commander, uh, Mohammed Hamdan Hameti. Three leaders also met uh, with the Sudan Armed Forces Commander-in-Chief, Abdel Rahman El-Bahan. On yesterday, even according to a statement issued in the first hours of today, After a frank and serious dialogue, the brother RSF leader assured us of his full commitment to non-escalation and his readiness to sit down with his brother, the chairman of the Sovereign Council and the commander-in-chief of the Sudan Armed Forces at any time and unconditionally in order to reach a radical solution to the crisis that will stop the bloodshed and achieve security in the country, they said on Friday. The statement of meeting uh, with the RSF leader 
was also co-signed uh, by two Darfur uh, tribesmen, namely Abdallah Ali Massa, a close political advisor to Hamedi, and Muhammad Issa Alio, uh, who is the deputy governor, governor of the Darfur region. And uh, in other news, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project has a multidimensional advantage for the Horn of Africa to create strong bonds uh, through energy and electricity. Uh, the dam has also uh, represents a paramount uh, importance to create interdependence between the Horn and the Nile Basin countries. Strategic resources, including electricity and oil, coupled with infrastructure services and projects, are of paramount importance in addressing social, economic, and even political problems in the Horn of Africa, thereby fostering regional trades. Hydrologist and Harmayai University, Shisham Seyum, uh, made this statement. Also, according to Amaris Adamasu, who is the assistant professor of Jima University International Affairs Director, said that, quote, we have full rights to get benefits from the Abe, uh, Nile River, since we are the source of the bulk amount of the water and have various economic and social problems. There is no international convention that obliges countries to accept a deal that does not involve one of the countries in making the deal. Moreover, every nation has a right to reject and struggle for cancellation of such agreements that harm its national interests. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And in the West African state of Ghana, Sheikh Abdul Mumim Dalhu, a renowned Islamic cleric, traditional ruler, and spiritual healer, said, we cannot achieve the peaceful war we seek with injustice or selective justice. He indicated that the United Nations Sustainable Peace Goal would remain a mirage if matters as that of the Palestinians are thrown into the bins. Sheikh Abdul Mumin Dalhu uh, was giving an address uh, on the commemoration of the International Kurds Day. According to him, the people of Palestine have been under grave oppression by the Zionists and have known no freedom or happiness. They have been continuously attacked, unabated, um, through bombings, discharges of harmful substances, etc. Neither a child has a shred of confidence of seeing their parents again when they go to work. No parent believes in the possibility of finding the corpse of their children for befitting burial. Their fate entirely, the gracious Lord depended, he said. He averred that wealthiest people who were supposed to provide better lives are rather the people causing hunger and destruction and making life unbearable for the people of Palestine. As the people of Palestine celebrate Al-Quds Day, Sheikh Abdul Mumin Dalhu affirmed his support for the Palestinian people in their freedom struggle. And uh, finally, uh, the... Democratic People's Republic of Korea's nuclear war deterrent for self-defense is rapidly developing at increasing speed in keeping with the immutable strategic line and policy of the Workers' Party of Korea and the government of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to ceaselessly develop the might of the strategic force of the DPRK to turn it into an entity of superpower and absolute strength, a powerful force capable of preventing the nuclear holocaust and deterring all sorts of possible dangerous enemy invasions and a treasured sword for defending justice and peace. On April the 13th of 2023, 
a powerful entity symbolic of the ceaseless development of the strategic force of the DPRK notified the world of its emergence. A new type of intercontinental ballistic missile, the Kwansopo 18, uh, which will fulfill its mission of an important war deterrent as the future core pivotal means of the strategic force of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, test fired. Kim Jong-un, Secretary General of the Workers' Party of Korea and President of the State Affairs of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, guided the first test fire of the new type ICBM on the spot. The aim of the test fire was to confirm the performance of the high-thrust solid fuel engines for the multi-stage missiles and the reliability of the stage jettisoning technology in various functional control systems and to estimate the military feasibility of the new strategic weapon systems. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment uh, of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published thousands of articles on dispatches, articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. And uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. Darling, you will never know how 
my daughter, I was so in love, it's evident for anyone to see, and I suppose they probably already do. And how come so suddenly everything depends on you? Depends to sing my life away, and nothing with you, my son, roughly to me. I'd probably do it again But then that's not so inconceivable, my friend The dance is in my life away Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the music of uh, Love, uh, led uh, by Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles, and that was from their uh, first album entitled Softly to Me, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, as we mentioned in our Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, the situation, security situation in the Republic of Sudan is becoming critical. Uh, there has been, of course, numerous uh, developments uh, that have taken place uh, just uh, throughout the day. Let's listen in to uh, a report as the situation unfolds in the Republic of Sudan. We begin with some breaking news coming in from Sudan, where we're getting reports of heavy gunfire across the capital. Tensions have been rising in recent days between the army and the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary group. Let's go straight to Hiba Morgan, who joins us live from there. So, Hiba, tell us what's the situation right now with the fighting. Well, we've just received statement from the Rapid Support Forces detailing their side of the story in which they say that uh, in Soba uh, camp where there is a military uh, camp both for the Rapid Support Forces and the, and, and, uh, the uh, Sudanese Armed Forces. Now, the Rapid Support Forces say that they were attacked by the Sudanese Armed Forces uh, in the early hours of April 15th, which is today. We are hearing gunfire in the capital here, Khartoum, near the vicinity of the presidential palace in the northern part of the capital as well as in Soba where they started and other parts of the capital as well. So lots of confusion here with regards to what is happening at the moment. People around the country, around the capital can hear the gunshots. They are terrified. Lots of people have been have not been able to access public transport, so they've been walking on foot trying to, access, uh, to get to the safety of their homes because of the confusion. I don't know if you can hear, but there is still the sound of gunfire from the vicinity of the presidential palace where we're not far from right now. Lots of confusion again, Sammy, uh, with regards to what's happening. But what people do know is that the tension between the rapid support forces and the military has reached its height with now direct confrontation between the two sides, not here in the capital, uh, Khartoum only, but also Merawi, where the tension started. 
And just to bring together all these little reports which are coming in, it sounds like fighting is happening in many parts of the country, right? Or Mudurman, Bahri, different areas. Yes, and that was the concern of the political parties of the trilateral uh, tripartite mechanism that has been mediating in the talks between the army and the, pol and, and the political parties. And uh, the concern for many people, really, including the international community, is that both sides are armed. Both sides have troops stationed in various parts of the country, in various parts of the capital. And should it escalate uh, between them? Yep, you can hear that. Uh, that's the sound of the gunfire um, just around us here in the capital, Khartoum, not far from the presidential palace. Uh, and that's the concern, Sami, the fact that they have troops in various parts of the country, in various parts of the capital, and including cities where there's civilian lives, where there's uh, where, where there residential areas. And so they are concerned that there will be civilian casualties in this battle between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Army. All right. And Hiba, just to confirm what you mentioned a moment ago, you mentioned that the RSF have put out this statement saying they are being attacked by the army. Is that something we can confirm, though? Have we had any statement from the army, for example, about what's happening? No, we can't. We're yet to hear from the army with regards to what's happening. The, the army has not put out a statement. Uh, we've, we've tried to reach uh, the army for comments. Uh, that has been very difficult at the moment to get through to them. But what we do know is that there are indeed direct clashes between the army and the rapid support forces, regardless of who started it and regardless of, uh, of who is responsible for the first shot. The fact remains right now, Sami, is that there is direct military confrontation between the rapid support forces and the army, two forces, again, with troops and forces spread around the capital, around the country, including residential uh, neighborhoods. And so there are concerns that there will be civilians caught in the crossfire between the two sides. And while you're talking, bear with me for a second here, because we've got lines dropping that the Sudanese paramilitary rapid support forces say they've communicated with international and local mediators and informed them of the situation. Of course, it remains to be seen what they can do at this point. But you also mentioned fighting around the presidential palace. Is that right, Hibber? We can hear the gunfire, Sammy. Where we are right now, we can't exactly see what is happening, but from the vicinity of the presidential palace, we can hear the gunshots. We can hear the gunshots from the northern part of the capital, Khartoum, and from the twin city of, the, uh, of Khartoum, Omdurman as well, which is behind us. In, par in other parts of Khartoum, such as Riyadh and Soba, we've spoken to residents there who say they can hear the gunfire, and they also say they can see the smokes uh, as a result of these clashes. Many of them say that they had to uh, hide within their homes because of these uh, sudden eruption of fighting between the two sides. Uh, streets, there are a lot of confusions uh, where people have started to go out uh, to start their day uh, on, on, on this Saturday. Now most of them have returned to their homes uh, seeking safety until we figure out exactly how bad is it and where are the areas most affected, whether in the capital or other cities as well. All right, and as, uh, as we're on air, this is all obviously a breaking news story and developing story, so bear with us, Hibber, because I'm getting all kinds of lines coming in here. There's a statement by the Rapid Support Forces Group saying that things kicked off today when basically a unit of the army tried to enter a position held by the Rapid Support Forces in their camp in Sova. I'm just translating it from, from Arabic here, so bear with me. So they're saying that that's how things 
kicked off here, but tell us a little bit about the importance of Subha. Well, Suba is a military camp. It is a, it's in the, the outskirts of the, of the, of, cap, of the city Khartoum. Uh, there are military presence both for the, uh, rapid support forces and the army. Military-wise, though, it doesn't hold more significance than, let's say, Meadowi right now, where, uh, there, where there is also fighting between the two sides and where the tension started. Um, the fact is that the tensions between the two sides any small uh, altercation between the two sides would have led to what we are seeing right now. And I don't know if you can hear Sammy, but there is heavy sound of gunfire around uh, where I am right now again, and this is the vicinity of the presidential palace. Uh, we do know that the army did block the roads leading to the presidential palace just about 15 to 20 minutes ago, but there are there have been the presence of rapid support forces uh, inside the presidential palace as well, because again, the head of the rapid support forces is the deputy head of the sovereignty council. That's the governing body here in Sudan, while the head of the army, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, is the head of the sovereignty council. So lots of confusion here with regards to what's happening right now. What we do know, again, is that there is fighting between the two sides in Soba, in Marui, where tension has been at its peak for the past uh, 24 to 48 hours. And despite the fact that we've heard statements from both, uh, or, or rather from mediators, saying that both the head of the army and the head of the rapid support forces are ready to de-escalate the situation, uh, just hours after hearing from mediators that the army, that the head of the army is ready to de-escalate, we're hearing gunfire around the capital. Maybe it's a good time as well, Hibbert, to put this into context. This tension started over the question of integrating the RSF into the army, right? That's if you're looking for a specific point uh, to, 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 to mark this tension. But in reality, tensions have been ongoing between the rapid support forces and the army way longer than that, Sammy. Uh, we've seen uh, months after the military takeover in October 2021, when we heard from the head of the rapid support forces, uh, describing that military takeover as a mistake which led Sudan to further political turmoil, while the head of the army, who's the head of the Sovereignty Council, uh, said that this was a necessity, that military takeover was a necessity because Sudan was in a political political turmoil and was on the edge as per his words. So obviously months after that takeover, the two were at odds on how to run uh, the, the, the post-military takeover period. And then came the issue of negotiating with the political parties. Both had different views with how to negotiate with the parties, how to, uh, to, to come to an agreement uh, for a new transitional government. And now with this talks between the political parties and, uh, and the military, uh, there came the issue of the security sector reform. The military wanted the RSF to fall under its command, while the RSF wanted to fall under the command of a civilian government. Then there's the issue of integration, how long that should take, and the ranks and, and, and files of the officers within the RSF and how they should be assessed and reintegrated into the army. So all of this just simply added to the already existing tension between the rapid support forces and the army, and which it looks like today, uh, on Saturday, has reached its peak with gunfire between the two sides. And just help our international audience to understand the difference between the army and this RSF rapid support forces and how they're led by two figures who are independent of each other to some degree.
Well, you have to look at the origin of the Rapid Support Forces. The Rapid Support Forces was officially established in 2013, but they've been fighting in the western region of Darfur way beyond before that, 10 years before that, in fact, uh, when they were fighting against the rebel forces alongside the army. Now, in 2013, they became an official uh, uh, fighting group. I, again, I don't know if you can hear how long. This is obviously within the, this is within the presidential palace. That we can definitely confirm because of the uh, vicinity and how loud it is. And it looks like a heavy, heavy gunfire between the two sides. Uh, but then again, let's return to the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, they have been established officially in 2013 to, uh, under the head of the intelligence back then. But around 2018, they were placed under the commander of the armed forces, who was President Bashir uh, back then in 2018. In 2019, when he was deposed, the head of the Rapid Support Forces became the deputy head of the Sovereignty Council, while the commander-in-chief of the army became the commander of the Sovereignty Council. So uh, the, the, that's, that's the difference between the two sides. The, the RSF is a paramilitary group that was set up uh, to fight the insurgency in the western region of Darfur. They also played a role in attacking the sit-in, uh, the pro-democracy sit-in in front of the army headquarters in June 2019. And uh, the military has been around, obviously, since the independence of Sudan. It's an institution that has been around longer. Hiba, I just uh, want to make sure you are in a safe um, place because we can, can definitely hear. hear the gunfire erupting around you. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, we would say again, we are within the vicinity of the presidential palace and we can hear the gunshots uh, and it looks like it is escalating. We heard it earlier, but now it's getting uh, more and more um, uh, louder. All right, Hiba, so let, me, let, let me ask you this question. You mentioned that there was an ex you, you can confirm there's some explosions going on around the presidential palace. Does that raise a question mark about the safety of uh, yes, sir. Uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan or the, the fate of Abdel Fattah al-Burhan? What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan's official residence is within uh, Hiba, are you okay, by the way? The I just so, heard that rounds uh, have been fired the, the around you. Uh, if you need to go and take cover, let, let's not keep you exposed. No, 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 we, we will be all right, I guess. Uh, when I disappear from the screen, that's when you should be concerned. Uh, but yes, uh, no, the, the head of the uh, armed forces, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan's residence, is actually within the uh, army, uh, the headquarters of the army. So he wouldn't uh, normally be at the presidential palace at the moment. But the forces from both sides, forces from both sides, the rapid support forces and the army, do have uh, their troops within the presidential palace. Again, that's because while General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is the commander of the armed forces. Uh, General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, the head of the Iraqi support forces, is the deputy head of the Sovereignty Council. So uh, the, 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 there will be the, 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 the presence of troops from the Iraqi support forces and the military inside the presidential palace is expected. All right. I think we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much, Shiva. We'll uh, come back to you later. All right, joining us by phone from Khartoum is Ala Ad-Din. He's a spokesman of the Sudanese Professionals Association. Good to have you with us. So does this look to you from what you've been able to verify that this is the feared clash between the rapid support forces and the army going on? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the uh, troops of the army attacked a camp for the RSF today morning in Soba, that is called the uh, 
Soba camp base where there is the RSF uh, forces. And it was in the statements of the RSF that uh, a huge troop of the army attacked uh, the base of the RSF without any um, uh, president or uh, without any preceding uh, awareness or preceding uh, uh, alarm that they are coming. And they attacked them with the many types of guns. Uh, so I think uh, uh, this is a Muslim Brotherhood troop uh, inside the army because uh, two days ago, uh, since the day before yesterday, they invaded uh, or they were a big presence of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood troop uh, uh, in the army uh, under the name of the reserve uh, forces. They were seen in, uh, in uh, army machines. Uh, in Khartoum, actually, and they are carrying uh, green sticks, uh, uh, young guys carrying green sticks, the same that was there in the disruption of the sitting area uh, uh, near the army headquarters in Khartoum in 2019 before, uh, in the beginning of the revolution, and uh, the same green sticks that were uh, used by the Muslim Brotherhood where they attacked the Bar Association house uh, one uh, one year ago in this uh, uh, after the 25th October coup so I think this is a big move from the Muslim Brotherhood uh, people or arms inside the army uh, to attack the rapid support forces because the, because of their position from the framework agreement and the final political process uh, we know that the Sudanese professionals association was involved in the mediation efforts it sounded before before this escalation of violence, like a resolution was coming together. We heard statements from uh, both Degalo and Abdel Fattah Burhan talking about taking steps to resolve things. What went wrong? Yeah. Yeah, I think what happened is because of the Muslim Brotherhood inside, inside the army, they don't want the things to go down. They want to get escalated, actually, because this is the last resource for, uh, this is the final battle for the Muslim Brotherhood to come uh, to the power. They will not uh, allow any uh, final political process uh, or uh, any final agreement to be But, but the army is controlled uh, by, by Abdel Fattah yeah. al-Burhan, not by Muslim Brotherhood or any other factions. Surely if, if army units are but, mobilizing, this is indicative yeah, but, but, of, of but, Abdel Fattah yeah, al-Burhan having the, some control Abdel Fattah on the situation. Uh, coup in 25th October is hiding, is hiding the Muslim Brotherhood. Behind it is the Muslim Brotherhood in the army. You know, since uh, the al-Bashir regime, the army was much uh, invaded by the Muslim Brotherhood, actually. And even, even the rapid support forces, but much more the army. So uh, the 20th October coup allows uh, the return back of most, if not all, the Muslim Brotherhood in many aspects of life, in the ministries, in the army, and even the people who were dismantled by the by the 30 June uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, regime dismantling committee, were back in the show. So they get more strength. Their money came back to them, and they get again into the power. So uh, this coup, 25th October coup, was hiding the Muslim Brotherhood uh, return back. So. Whenever there let, is a let me jump in and ask you, where does this leave the transition process from military rule to civilian? We know that there was tension between the RSS and uh, the army over 
some of the posts, like chief of staff, who becomes chief of staff? Does it go to a civilian? Exactly. Does it fall under civilian oversight or remain with the military? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, what's happening since the security sector reform workshop and uh, during the statements of both the army and the RSF, it showed clearly that the RSF uh, is with uh, the idea and the opinion of the democratic transition and the return of a civilian government leading the country. And the civilian leadership should lead the security sector reform. But the army was against that. The army was against the democratic transition, although they declare in their statements they are with the democratic transition, but they refuse for the civilian government and leadership to lead the SSR, and that is the usual that's happening in the democratic transition. So that statement and that position from the army, it shows clearly that the Muslim Brotherhood in the army are not agreeing for security sector reform and for civilian government to come back and democratic transition to have a pathway into the country. And they use the army and their presence in the army as their last resource or the last way to, uh, to come back to the show and to get leadership of the country. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your thoughts on that. Let's go uh, back is, to Hiba Morgan. Some, uh, some vehicles of, of, uh, of the army right now inside the Khartoum uh, airport. I think uh, there is uh, something going there. All right, thank you for your thoughts on that. We're looking at live pictures coming in right now from Sudan. You can see pictures coming in from Marwa. That's where clearly something is on fire and reports coming in at least from the side of the rapid support forces talk about how they have been attacked by the Sudanese army units. They refer to an incident in the area in a camp in Suba coming under attack this morning by what they say aggressive units from the army that began firing heavy and light arms on them and they're calling for international condemnation of this. Now, I believe we do have Hiba Morgan with us. She joins us live from Sudan. So, Hiba, just give us a, a feeling now of... We're, we're looking at live pictures coming in from Marwa, and something's clearly on fire. It, it looks like this is a situation which is continuing to escalate right across the country, right? Yes, indeed. I mean, people were hoping that it would end in a few minutes, and uh, uh, sounds of gunfire gun getting heavier and heavier, and uh, especially, again, within the vicinity of the presidential palace. And now, uh, from what we understand from sources uh, uh, around the residence of the deputy head of the Sovereignty Council and the head of the Rapid Support Forces, uh, General Mohammed Hamdan Daglu, as well as within the, uh, the guest house, which is the residence of General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the fact that the fighting has reached those areas, then things have escalated very quickly. Um, uh, here in the capital, the streets have become semi-vacated. Uh, uh, People have been seeking the safety of their, of their homes. Um, the roads to some of the, uh, the, the bridges to some of the, uh, to, to the Fulkat capital, one of them, you understand, has been uh, blocked by the rapid support forces. Um, we understand, again, that uh, there is fighting in Soba, in the area of uh, Jabra as well, and we know that fighting in Marawi uh, army base, where the tensions have started, is ongoing. So things don't look to be calming down, despite the fact that there were statements um, 
from mediators that both the head of the rapid support forces and the head of the army say that they want to de-escalate the situation uh, to avoid this kind of situation. All right, we're getting uh, reports here about RSF forces, the rapid support forces, deploying on the tarmac of Khartoum um, airport. And these airport? are pictures. We're playing pictures right now here, but let me talk you through what we're playing on the, on the screen here. We're playing pictures, latest pictures, showing the deployment of what looks like military personnel. A little hard to say just based on looking at the pictures who exactly they are, but the reports talk about the RSF deploying at the tarmac of the airport in Khartoum. Can you tell us anything about that, Hiba? Well, Khartoum International Airport is the major airport in the country, and should the RSF have taken over the tarmac, then they've expected to be taken over the airport. Uh, and, and there have been concerns uh, over, over that as well. We do know that earlier on, the Army did try to deploy to that uh, vicinity. Um, again, this all started over an airport, the airport in Merawi in northern Sudan. So uh, the, the, if, if the RSF have indeed deployed and taken over the Khartoum International Airport, then th th this would be uh, something major. But again, uh, it's very hard to get something out of the army at the moment. They seem to be more busy in uh, engaging with what's going on rather than answering their phones, which is understandable. But again, the situation has been very tense. People do want to hear, just like they heard from the rapid support forces about them being attacked in so, but they also want to hear from the army to figure out to figure out exactly what happened and what is going on in the country. Um, let me also bring us up to speed, Hiba. As you're talking, we're getting reports saying all roads to the Sudanese capital have now been blocked and all roads to the presidential palace have been blocked. So clearly this is an escalating situation. We're looking at the latest pictures which came in. You can see the smoke billowing overhead over buildings in the capital, Khartoum. Hiba, give us an idea of the relative strength of the RSF. How much muscle, so to speak, do they have? Well, uh, the RSF's exact fighting force has not been disclosed by the rapid support forces. We do know that it ranges somewhere, according to experts, between 80 to 100,000. Uh, but this is estimation, and that's because they've continued to recruit, they've continued to uh, train, they've continued to graduate forces, uh, especially after the head of the rapid support forces became the deputy head of the sovereignty council. Uh, so it's not exactly clear how many... Uh, officers and how many soldiers uh, they have. What we do know is that they do have bases and camps around the country. Uh, ever since uh, becoming the deputy head of the Sovereignty Council, General Mohammed Hamdan Daglo's forces became stationed in further parts of the country, parts where uh, previously he, his forces were not present. So this is raising concerns that, again, because it's starting, it started here in the capital, it's happening in Marawi. What about the other parts of the country, places like Darfur, which is already reeling from two decades of, of civil war, places like the East, which has been very volatile and very fragile due to conflicts and tribal tensions, uh, and where there are forces of the rapid support forces as well as the army, the Sudanese army. So all of this is raising concerns. Uh, because both uh, sides are, are armed, both sides have forces, both sides are, uh, are stationed around the country. Uh, they are concerned that this one will take some time before it dies down and that there will be civilian casualty. 
as you're speaking, Hibbe, we're looking at pictures also coming in from Marawi. That, of course, is one of the hotspots in this tension. Talk us through what you're hearing about developments there. We can see a lot of smoke billowing over the horizon there, too. What we do know is that just moments after the fighting started in Soba between the rapid support forces and, uh, and the Sudanese armed forces, uh, Marawi as well, uh, fighting started there as well. Now, Marawi has been at the center of the tension between the two sides, uh, for, uh, for, for three days now, and that's because in uh, the early hours of Wednesday, troops from the rapid support forces, uh, moved towards the army base, uh, and the airport in Marawi and stationed themselves there. More than a hundred uh, cars of, uh, of, uh, from the rapid support forces stationing, setting up a base camp near the army. And that is what heightened the already existing tensions between the two sides. Now, uh, for the past, uh, w when that happened on Wednesday, the army requested the rapid support forces to withdraw from their new set of positions. That did not happen. In fact, we heard from the commander of the infantry in Marawi, the armed, com uh, the army the army commander from um, Marawi that there were more reinforcements uh, ha uh, for, for the rapid support forces uh, in Marawi. And uh, that the, the, there's fighting here uh, happening right now in Marawi shows that the situation which many people and many sides have hoped uh, would, be, would, would die down and would not lead to a full-on confrontation uh, is not happening and that there's now a full-on confrontation between the two sides and uh, their concerns about the civilians who will be caught up in the middle. We're getting lines as well talking about how fighting is now broken out close to the headquarters of the Sudanese Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. <coughs> is this the place where the leader of the RSF, Mohammed <coughs> Hamdan Degala, also known as Hamidti, would normally be based? Well, it, it, at the moment, again, because of the tension between the two sides, Sami, you can't confirm or whether they were actually in their residential areas or not. Normally, he would be in his, uh, in his residence, and his residence is not far from the airport, not far from the uh, home uh, and the residence of the head of the armed forces, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. So under normal circumstances, you'd find Burhan uh, in his residence, which is within the army headquarters. You'd find the head of the rapid support forces in his residence, not far from the residence of the commander uh, of the army. And you would see their forces stationed around each other, talking to each other, dealing with each other normally, because they were at some point allies and, and, and partners, including uh, in the overthrow of President Omar al-Bashir in the military takeover in October 2021. They were partners, and, and things were normal between them. But after that is when the tensions began. So again, we can't confirm whether the head of the rapid support forces was at his residence uh, at the time of, uh, or, or right now when the fighting has started. But there have been a lot of tensions over the past 24 to 48 hours. So it would not be surprising if both have not been at their residence because they're expecting something like this to happen. Hiba, are we hearing anything from either Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, the head of the army, or from Mohammed Hamdan Degala, the head of the RSF at this point? We haven't heard from any side yet. So we haven't heard from the rapid support forces. We haven't heard from, uh, uh, we, from the head of the rapid support forces, rather, or from the head of the army. We have heard from the media team of the rapid support forces detailing what they say was an attack on their base in Soba, which is how they thought it. Whether that is exactly what happened or whether they has a different uh, story to this, uh, 
to how it started, that, that is something we're yet to hear. But what we do know, Sami, is that regardless, again, of how it started, this is now something that has spread across the capital in Umdurman, the twin city of Khartoum, in the northern part of Khartoum, uh, that's Khartoum North, across the bridge, uh, around the vicinity of the airport, around the vicinity of the army headquarters and the residents of both the head of the RSF and the head of the army. So this has escalated to way beyond just that single army base where everything has started. And just give us an idea, Hiba, as we try to understand what's happening. And, and by the way, I should point out to viewers, we're looking at live pictures coming in, well, momentarily. That, that's Khartoum, I believe. But a moment ago, we had split box showing multiple locations going on around the country. There we go. So on the right hand of your screen, you're looking at live pictures from Khartoum. On the left hand of your screen, you're looking at pictures coming in from Merawi. That's in the north of Sudan. Both areas, well, two of several areas where getting pictures, uh, where we're getting reports of fighting haven't broken out. Of course, we're hearing about fighting in other places too, Bahri, and Umudurman, amongst other places. This is clearly a, a situation which seems to be getting out of control right across the country. But Hiba, hopefully you're still there and can hear me. Give us an idea yes, of how much control either bo both of these men have, whether it's Hamidti on the one hand, the RSF, or General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. How much cohesiveness is there within these forces? How much control do they have over units? Earlier I was speaking to a guest who was suggesting that, you know, these are factions within the army trying to start trouble. You know, how much cohesiveness is there within the structure of these military forces? Well, let's first of all take a look at the structure of the Rapid Support Forces. Again, established in 2013 officially, but they have been fighting uh, a decade prior to that in the, uh, in the war in Darfur, uh, fighting the rebel groups in that area, in that region. Um, they, they were largely set up from the border guards, from uh, the Arab tribes that were armed by the, uh, by the Sudanese government back then, and... Um, they don't have the same command and structure as the uh, as the army. Then, when you look at the army, uh, they're an institution uh, for you to get into to become an officer in the army. Uh, you have to go through military academy. Uh, you have to go through three years of training, and and you basically have to climb up the ranks now. And that was that was one of the issues between the RSF and the and the army when it came to integration. The fact that in the army you have to go, you have to climb through the ranks. It could take years, and it uh, it, it, it comes down to your achievements in the army. One in the RSF, it comes down to your tribal affiliations as per experts, and it comes down to uh, the battle you fought, but not the military academy that you've gone through. So that is the difference between the two institutions um, or the or, or, or the two forces. Um, when it comes to cohesiveness, we've seen the army repeatedly um, uh, showing some kind of uh, showing that they're united when it comes to, uh, to to issues dealing with the country. When it came to the takeover, when it came to overthrowing Al Bashir in uh, 2019, and then you have the RSF. Uh, they seem to be again largely on uh, based on their on, on their tribal affiliations, and that is why. Uh, as for many people who have been studying the RSF, when conflicts erupt in Darfur, it takes some time for it to ebb down because of the rapid support forces affiliation to their tribal, um, to their tribes there in the region. So, two different institutions, different uh, makeup, but both powerful, both armed, both spread across the country, and now both fighting each other. 
And it, it's, it, it doesn't look like it's a battle that would um, end in, in, in a day or two. And that's, again, because the RSF has grown uh, over the past few years, especially since the head of the RSF became the deputy head of the Rapid Support Forces. All right. Uh, we just crossed 8.30 GMT a few minutes ago. Maybe it's a good time. Take a little breather and let's bring viewers up to speed with what's happening in Khartoum in Sudan right now. So reports started to trickle in about half an hour ago or so of fighting having broken out. We're looking at live pictures. You can clearly see smoke there. It does look like trouble is brewing in the capital Khartoum. Reports talk about, and this is of course a claim, a statement coming in from the rapid support forces saying that one of their units was attacked in an army camp in Suba by the Sudanese army. That's of course a statement by the RSF, that's their side of the story. We can't confirm that at this point, but their side of the story is the Sudanese army moved to attack RSF forces in Suba. Very quickly, we've got reports of fighting breaking out in other areas right across Sudan. Bahri, Omudurman, Khartoum, and Mirwi. I think we can bring in some pictures now of Mirwi in the north of Sudan. There we go. You can clearly see there, it does look like there's trouble going on. A lot of black smoke billowing out. And again, the report there is that there's fighting going on close to important installations around Mirwi. And more reports coming in from Khartoum saying fighting has reached the presidential palace. Fighting has reached the headquarters of the RSF, the Sudanese Rapid Support Forces. These are obviously very key areas in the power structure of this country. Air bases, we had reports of the deployment of RSF for forces on the tarmac of Khartoum Air Base, uh, airport. And then we can see pictures coming in that does appear to show some kind of movement of military personnel across the tarmac there. And a call, a statement by the RSF calling for local and international condemnation of the Sudanese army. We have not heard from either the head of the army personally himself, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, or personally from the head of the RSS, General uh, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hamidti. All right, let's see if we can, let's, let's bring in Hiba Morgan again. She is following this situation for us. We saw you up on the roof moments ago, Hiba. Thank you for bringing us the, this update in very challenging, difficult circumstances. What is the big picture, Hiba, of where this leaves the transition process, right? This was supposed to be the big story of Sudan this year, was a transition away from years and decades of military rule towards some kind of civilian rule. Well, it depends on uh, on how optimistic you were about Sudan. Um, the fact that 
again, that there were tensions between the rapid support forces and the army was something that many people who have been observing Sudan, many people who have been involved in Sudan uh, knew about it. In fact, there was even a warning from the back, uh, from then Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok that should the rapid support forces and the army not be integrated and their issues sorted, then they will pose a challenge to Sudan's transition. So even way back in 2019, uh, the RSF and the, rapid, uh, and the Sudanese armed forces were uh, causing concerns because they were too two armed groups, high, uh, uh, high opposition, strong forces spread around the country and obviously two different chains of command. Uh, so that was raising concerns. Now, yes, there was supposed to be a transitional government formed in April. There was supposed to be an agreement of uh, a handover of power from the military, both the RSF and the uh, armed forces, to a civilian government led by political parties uh, who will then nominate their own prime minister. That's what was supposed to happen. Now, obviously, the fact that there is fighting between the two sides um, and that the issue of the security sector reform has not been resolved, then the, uh, the odds of them actually coming down to sign an agreement is not going to happen anytime soon. In fact, uh, should the RSF uh, be victorious in this case, then they may be renegotiating the terms of this agreement with the political parties. Now, if the army... Uh, on the other hand, is the one that comes out victorious in this battle between the two sides, then they also will renegotiate the terms of that uh, handing over of power to civilian government between them and political parties. So, uh, again, regardless of, uh, of who uh, is going to come out uh, the winner in this, in this battle between the two, the fact that is this has halted the political uh, process, this has resulted in, uh, in a delay of uh, a new period of transition to Sudan. In fact, now, uh, I don't think uh, the, the trilateral mechanism, the tripartite mechanism, which has been negotiated or rather facilitating the talks between the parties and the army would be able to uh, bring up any uh, any talks of uh, of uh, of uh, sorry we've just seen the army moving around uh, here in on Mile Street here in the capital Khartoum but yeah so uh, ha- having them discuss the issue of of a transition right now is something that is out, uh, out of question. In fact, the, the, the talks right now would probably focus on trying to de-escalate the situation, trying to end the fighting, trying to get those two sides to sit down and negotiate rather than uh, fight it out on the battleground and in residential areas, which could potentially lead to uh, civilian um, uh, loss of life. As you're talking, Hibbo, we're looking at pictures coming in on the right hand of the screen, we've got pictures coming in from Khartoum. On the left hand, Murawi. Clearly, there does seem to be trouble. You can see the smoke over the capital, Khartoum, and now in Murawi, in the north of Sudan. And we understand, Hiba, that there was supposed to be a new transitional constitution. There was supposed to be new steps going on this year and in April. I guess all of that now, there's a huge question mark on all of that process. Uh, yes, uh, the, the, the fact that, again, uh, that one side that is supposed to be signing an agreement, or rather two sides that were supposed to be signing an agreement, uh, are right now at odds with each other and fighting with each other militarily and not just verbally like it was before, then obviously that kind of puts the, uh, the, the, the issue of transitional government, transitional uh, constitution and all that on the back burner for the time being. And the focus right now from uh, in all the bodies here was the ones who have been facilitating uh, the talks between the parties, those who have been mediating and the political parties themselves. The focus would mo- mostly be on trying to 
stop this current situation that is unfolding and which is direct confrontation between the rapid support forces and the army and they would try to turn it into um uh, into into mediation between the two sides so that at least uh, there, there would be some kind of stability this has taken sudan from just in a, a political turmoil to now a full-on military battle and, and 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 a security issue there are concerns of what is going to happen not just in the capital Khartoum, but it goes beyond that Marawi. Where, uh, where things are unfolding as well. Darfur, which is already volatile from the years of war, and the East, which is already facing tribal tensions. So there are concerns right now with all of the things that are going on, um, uh, what, what is going to happen, and definitely the issue of forming a transitional government, signing a transitional constitution, having a transitional legislative assembly, that won't be in the talks anytime soon. All right, thanks so much, Hibas. Do stay with us. I'm sure we're going to come back to you. Let's bring in, though, now Mohammed Al-Amin Ahmed. He's a journalist and conflict zone analyst, joins us from Khartoum. Good to have you with us. Is this now a battle of survival between these two military units? Uh, yes, it's, it's... Welcome back. And uh, that, uh, are, those were reports of the situation in the Republic of Sudan as it is unfolding. Uh, today, uh, Saturday, April 15th, uh, 2023, uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. And, of course, there is a power struggle on between uh, two uh, military structures inside the Republic of Sudan, the Rapid Support Forces uh, against uh, the Sudanese uh, Armed Forces. In another report uh, that we have um is an interview uh, with the former Sudanese uh, foreign minister uh, who is talking about uh, her reactions to the situation inside the country. Let's listen in. ...to fight armed groups in the Darfur region. It was later used in crackdowns and anti-government protests. The Rapid Support Forces led the response to rallies in Khartoum in June 29, 2019, in which 123 people were killed and hundreds were injured. Last month, talks between the paramilitary unit and the army failed to reach an agreement on when it would be integrated into the armed forces. The rapid support forces say it needs 10 years, while the army wants only two. Well, joining us now from Khartoum is Mariam al-Mahdi, Sudan's former foreign minister. Give us your reaction to what's happening. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, Thank you very much for this uh, interview in this uh, critical time. I am here sitting in my house, listening to the uh, voices of the uh, uh, exchange of armor, uh, listening to the voice of the airplanes above the skies of uh, Khartoum, the capital. And I really feel very sad and very angry. Actually, I'm enraged. And I, see, I, I, I say to both of them, shame on you, both of you. You have been entrusted uh, for this great revolution, and uh, you already committed an unsensical coup, and we came back to our senses as Sudanese, uh, rational people and wise uh, leaders, and you again pledged that you will deliver back the, uh, the, 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 the power to the civilians, and now while the civilian operation the political operation is reaching towards its end. Uh, they come this eruption of this nonsensical war that is de demonstrates again the, uh, how these 
two armed men uh, regard the Sudanese people in as very low. Uh, this war needs doesn't need to come because it takes two stupid stubborn parties to go to war. Things were already agreed to be settled by dialogue. Already we have signed a paper of uh, for uh, security sector reform. It was first signed by both of them. Then the other civilian forces supported their agreement. So uh, yes, this uh, war was not at all anticipated. Though we have been seeing how they have been deploying the troops from everywhere, how they have been confronting each other in, inside the, 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 the neighborhoods of the civilian people and inside the capital Khartoum. We thought this was just a show of power or show of force uh, because they have this ego, both of them, around themselves. But to take things to this level and to devastate the security of the civilians deliberately, like they did both of them, this is absolutely shame on both of them. And this is a very serious failure in the uh, political will. And uh, the devastation now, or the, 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 the uh, devastation to the civilians' uh, security inside their homes and in the, their side uh, in neighborhood will, 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 will not go uh, unpunished. It will not go uh, in pardon. This is a very serious thing done deliberately over uh, several weeks. And now each of them is claiming that the other one started the war. And because it is shameful, of course, each one will deny it. But the truth will come very soon at a very high cost of Sudanese people's uh, blood, at very cost of Sudanese people's security and feeling of insecurity, as very uh, high cost of uh, defamation of Sudan as, as, uh, as, uh, as a country of a, a, of a great revolution mm. to be devastated like this. Really, it is uh, something that is putting me really in a personal enrage, and I don't see the, the point because both of them, they know no one can, can win. Sudanese armed forces is the national Sudanese forces, which is respected by everybody, which it is the, uh, the, the forces that is uh, assigned for the security of Sudan by the, uh, by the Constitution. The Rapid Support Force is uh, initiated and established by the Sudanese armed forces and, and actually by the previous regime, but they have done a great job in, in supporting the revolution. Uh, we know for the last uh, at least uh, 12 months, there have been huge comeback of the previous uh, regime, uh, the National Congress Party, the NCP, who have been uh, inciting lots of, uh, of anger, lots of uh, lack of trust amongst and between the two of them, and also amongst the Sudanese uh, public opinion, because they said, and they said that when they uh, are out of power, they will, Sudan will, will be uh, devastated. And actually, they are now actualizing their promise in this uh, also very bad way, showing that the NCP, whatever we try to deal with them as country men and women uh, having their citizenship, uh, they were not they were not harassed, they were not uh, hung. Ma'am, I'd like to ask you about a point that you made earlier on. Forgive me for interrupting you, but you raised an interesting point about the impact that this is going to have in Sudan. Sudan, of course, is a country with uh, a struggling economy. What do you think that the impact of this conflict, of even course, though it lasts it only perhaps huge... for 24 hours or so, even if it's short-lived, what kind of impact is that going to Absolutely. have in Sudan? Absolutely. 
absolutely only only the deployment was was defaming Sudan. Only the the the, 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 the deployment even before they have now stopped the 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 the, the, the air uh, uh, the airport and uh, they already the Khartoum is totally disconnected and uh, put into standstill. Before that. Sudan, uh, as, a, as a promising land of many resources, as a very important strategic uh, land connecting the Eastern Africa and the, and the Western Africa, uh, and, and, and making a, 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 having great uh, opportunities in agriculture, and now we are approaching into the, uh, the, the what we call it the, um, the uh, summer season of uh, agriculture. All that they have really devastated. And, and it is needless, and it is nonsensical. Uh, now already the uh, uh, Sudan uh, uh, security uh, uh, apparatus, they declared uh, the rapid support force as, as, as a rebel group, and that they are waging uh, war against them. And the rapid support force, they are saying they are defending themselves. We know that they have been uh, so many challenges in that, but it was all addressed. And it was all uh, within the reach of, of, of resolution because uh, everybody confesses that Sudanese armed force must, must be united. Uh, all the rapid support force must merge uh, uh, in Sudanese armed force. All the rebel groups who came, uh, uh, the militia the, the the, the of the uh, uh, warring party uh, who came uh, through the Juba Peace Agreement should all merge uh, uh, together because this is a major call for the revolution. It's a major call for us uh, in this political operation to have a one national professional army. This is our mm. call. This is our commitment. Maria Mahmati, so we appreciate you being with us in Al Jazeera. Forgive me for interrupting you. Unfortunately, time is against us. But Maria Mahmati, Tiran, former foreign minister, ma'am, thank you very much indeed for being with us. And uh, that was a report uh, from inside uh, Khartoum. Uh, the capital of the Republic of Sudan, where a major military struggle is taking place uh, between uh, two different military structures, the rapid support forces against uh, the Sudanese armed forces. That's what it appears to be uh, this uh, at this time period on Saturday, April 15th, uh, 2023. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Here's another uh, conversation uh, between a Sudanese democracy activist and uh, a journalist uh, as the situation is continuing to unfold in Sudan. Let's go over to Dalia Mohammed Abdelmoulin. She is an activist and joins us now by Skype, also from Khartoum. Can you give us an idea? We were speaking moments ago uh, to our other guest who was talking about the explosions that she can see and hear and feel rocking her house. Uh, tell us what you're seeing. Um, well, I mean, I don't know if you can hear it, but it's literally very heavy artillery. It's not just a normal gun. It's really heavy weaponry that's being used. I mean, our house is shaking. It's been, it's been shaking for a bit now. And I stepped out just to see, and all I could see was plumes of smoke. But honestly, uh, we're not venturing out. We're not going out anywhere because we really don't know what's happening. But we are where I'm, where I live is very close to one of the bases or the headquarters of the RSF, 
so which is also near like a five minute drive from the palace from the presidential palace and the main area of downtown Khartoum. So I guess this is where the majority of the and if you can call it fighting is taking place at this moment. All right, and as you're talking to us, we're getting uh, lines dropping here. Stay with me for a second, Dalia. But uh, Sudan's general intelligence is calling the RSF a rebel group. When we hear statements like that, Dalia, it must be very worrying for the path that the country is on, for the unity of the country at this point. It is, it's, it's actually it's, it's frightening. It's not just worrying, it's frightening because they've li literally reached the point of no return. This latest escalation shows that all the talks, all the negotiations have fallen flat. They have failed miserably because until yesterday night, we, we were reading and, re being, and being told that an agreement had been reached between both sides, between the RSF and the army. So then to wake up this morning and to hear of these crashes, goes to, it just points the finger that we don't know what's going to happen next. So far, they ha I mean, we have, I haven't heard of any casualties, civilian casualties, nor of um, pers army personnel casualties, but it is between them, and, and we, the people, are the ones caught in the middle. And Khartoum is a very densely populated city. It's not open spaces. So, yeah, so anything that can go wrong, it will be devastating. I mean, but then again, this is new to us in the center. But for those who've been living in Darfur or in the Nuba Mountains, this, this was a norm for them, but for us in the center, it's not, and it's definitely not a pleasant experience to live, to go through. Were people prepared for this kind of situation, Dalia? Were they stocked up? One imagines if this fighting becomes prolonged, issues like access to food, healthcare, and so on might become complicated if people were not expecting this. It is very complicated because actually the talk was that something would happen probably over Eid because then, you know, it's the calm, it, you know, it's Eid, it's a holiday, everyone's out, so that would be the perfect time for them to do anything if any of the, if either side wanted to step it up. So we were really caught, up, caught by surprise by what happened this morning. And no, we're not prepared. I mean, I personally was planning on going buying some supplies just because it's it's still Ramadan and we have an Eid coming up. So, but now we're all stuck at home or stuck wherever we are and just waiting to see how it will play out. But, I mean, it's worrying that there's, there's been no uh, statements released from neither the, the Troika or the EU. I haven't seen anything. So we don't know what's happening behind closed doors. Are they reaching out? Are there negotiations? No one knows. Honestly, I don't think anyone knows what's happening. We keep getting different reports. RSF is in the arm, is in the airport. There's shooting in the runways. We don't know what's happening. It's just getting snippets of information from social media, from friends and contacts and colleagues. And the good thing is so far, the internet hasn't been shut down. So in that sense, that's a blessing. But other than that, we're just gonna play it by ear and just see how it's for, you know, how it falls out towards the end, of, you know, for the next few hours. We will hope uh, you and, and, and the civilians, everyone, stay safe there. Thank you so much, Dalia, for talking to us. Let's go over to Dwight Tariq. She's a social activist and member of Girifna. That's, of course, a popular non-violent protest movement. So, Dwight, bring us up to speed with where this is leaving. You're a member of one of 
the, the protest movement forces. Has this caught the civilian component off guard? Um, um, how are you? And uh, thanks for having me. Um, I don't think it caught anybody by guard because we've been preparing for this. Even the military appearances um, all over Khartoum city for the past, um, let's say, two weeks. And um, given the statements that coming out from the RSF and the military, this was no surprise. But of course, um, the videos are terrifying. Um, the sound, the sounds of the uh, shooting and bombing, um, uh, because I also live near close to the, um, uh, 10 minutes away from the um, South Khartoum where, where the first altercation happened this morning. And we can see, uh, we, we can hear some of the um, um, uh, shooting. And um, also right now, um, we're not worried um, about no political um, agreement because it was clear that it wasn't uh, going anywhere, and uh, we all, like in the neighborhood committees and revolution, we all ex was ex expecting this, and we were seeing it, just like the coup. So it, it didn't. I don't think it caught anybody by guard. Yeah, but does it undermine the civilian component of the transitional process when you've got these two military units going at it now? Um. Actually, we don't, we we still not we still didn't hear from um, any civilian component. We were only receiving news and updates through uh, social media or um, some uh, people live near to the um, to the fight, and uh, we've been following, of course, on uh, news um, or the news on the TV. But so far, we didn't uh, hear from um, uh, no civilian um, no, no, no civilian parties or like forces. All right. Thank you so much, Tariq. There. Let's. Uh... Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, <clears throat> worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, we're dealing uh, with the current uh, security crisis uh, inside of the Republic of Sudan. There's been fighting all day uh, between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese uh, armed forces, uh, fighting around the International Airport at Khartoum also at the residence of both uh, the head of the Rapid Support Forces, uh, Hameti, as well as the commander of the Sudanese Armed Forces, Abdel Fattah al-Bahan. Also fighting uh, has been reported uh, at Meroway uh, in the north of uh, the Republic of Sudan, along uh, with uh, the areas around the presidential palace in the capital city of Khartoum. Uh, here's a report uh, that was uh, <clears throat> resulted from a discussion that took place yesterday, giving some background in terms of the crisis that has unfolded uh, today. Military players in Sudan are turning against each other. They were partners in a coup that ended a short-lived coalition with civilians. But now each side is vying for more power. So could the standoff grow into a civil war? And what does it mean for the future of Sudan? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Mohammed Jamjoum. After years of instability and coups, fears are growing of another armed conflict in Sudan. The paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, has deployed fighters to major cities. 
The Army warns the move could fuel divisions and threaten security. And plans to sign an agreement for a new transitional government have again been delayed. With a potential battle for power, many fear an armed conflict could turn into a civil war. Katia Lopez-Hodoyan has more. These are not the headlines people in Sudan were hoping for. Plans for a new government are on hold yet again. Instead, focus has turned to tensions between the army and a powerful paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces. The escalation boils down to two leaders competing for power. On one side is the army led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. On the other is the head of the Rapid Support Forces, General Mohammed Hamdan Tagalo, known as Hemeti. This week, he mobilized troops in several cities, including the capital, Khartoum. The two generals disagree about when and how the paramilitary unit will be integrated into the armed forces. And that is the condition for the transition to civilian rule. This redeployment issued by the Rapid Support Forces will lead to more tension and division in Sudan. It may also lead to security failures. The RSF worked with the military to overthrow Omar al-Bashir in 2019. Two years later, they carried out another coup. Dozens of protesters were killed in the aftermath. Hundreds were arrested. With the new government due to be appointed, the generals seem determined to maintain their influence. We have General Burhan and General Hemeti fighting for power while we fight to find food and water. They're fighting for authority over our country and people while we fight for education and health services. As the threat of an armed conflict grows, the much-anticipated agreement for a peaceful transition to a civilian-led government remains unsigned. Katia Lopez-Odoyan for Inside Story. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests here in Doha. Walid Madibo, founder and president of Sudan Policy Forum. In Khartoum, Khulud Khair, founding director of Confluence Advisory, a Sudan-based think tank. And in Medford, Massachusetts, Alex Duvall, professor at Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and executive director at the World Peace Foundation. Khulud, let me start with you today. The Rapid Support Forces had worked with the military to overthrow Omar al-Bashir in 2019. Two years later, they carried out another coup. Why are the heads of these groups now at loggerheads? Well, the reality is that they've always been at loggerheads to some degree, and that's because they have very different visions for consolidating their power grab in 2019 and their coup in 2021. But the reality is that they both want to avoid accountability. They both want to avoid committing to security sector uh, reform um, elements that will vastly circumscribe or curtail or limit uh, their powers. And so there are signs that they're actually working together to escalate the tensions between them and to very publicly show this escalation in order to gain concessions from pro-democracy forces, only then to de-escalate um, these tensions as we've been seeing in the past uh, few hours in, in order to maintain uh, those concessions, particularly on reforms. And this is in a cycle of rinse and repeat that we've seen for at least the last few years now. 
Uh, Walid, could you tell us a bit more about these two men, the two generals, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and General Hamidti? Um, what else is behind this struggle as well? They are in a real quagmire. If you take uh, Himeti, for example, the head of the RSF, uh, if he decides to go with, uh, I mean, if he gives in to the, the demands of the, uh, of the public, uh, then he may lose uh, uh, protection for his wealth or uh, whatever amount uh, he, he has garnered from the, the gold uh, in the past few years. If, if he... Uh, if, if he decides to go ahead with the coup d'etat and uh, doesn't yield to the demands of the international community, then he may face uh, targeted sanctions. So th this is the, the, the quagmire of uh, Himeti. Likely, if you think about, uh, if you think of uh, Burhan, uh, if he decides uh, to go ahead with the agreement, he is going to face the old guard who are still in, in, in good control of the, of the army. And, uh, but if he doesn't, then he is going to face the popular uh, revolution that has never stopped since uh, 2019. So the, the personal quagmire of these two individuals has become the quagmire of the nation as a whole. Not to forget uh, uh, the sort of influence that they are receiving from the regional powers, mainly Egypt, that is supporting Burhan, and UAE, that is supporting Hamidi. Uh, Alex, uh, Walid was talking there about what he called the quagmire of these two individuals. I mean, is that what this escalation essentially boils down to? Is it simply about two leaders competing for power? It's a, a struggle for power. It's a struggle for control of, of the, the, the central instruments of coercion and, and, and state authority. And it's a, a struggle to keep intact these vast kleptocratic uh, military business empires that exist. Hemeti um, uh, is the newcomer to this. He's built his, 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 his corporate uh, militia empire up over uh, recent years, but Al-Burhan and the whole crony capitalist system that developed around the, the military establishment is equally entrenched. And in fact, the, the immediate trigger for uh, the coup of, of um, 18 months ago was precisely in order to, to halt the exposure and potential dismantling of these, um, this sort of military commercial complex that has been sucking the other uh, country's economic lifeblood uh, dry for so many years. Uh, Alex, let me follow up with you about another point, uh, because many point out the fact that um, a lot right now uh, is hinging on the RSF potentially being integrated into the army. Does the stability of the country going forward depend on that? There has to be some major reform and uh, to, to, to the security apparatus, um, which um, every step that has been taken up to now, every agreement among the parties has involved expanding that security apparatus and, and paying off the soldiers in order to get them to cooperate. And, and that is part of this um, deadly cycle that has uh, led to this, this entrapment and, and, and this quagmire. So definitely there needs to be some 
form of integration and security sector reform, but it has to be taken in the broader context that the, the army itself needs to be uh, thoroughly reformed and downsized and made into a professional army that um, serves the people instead of dominating them. Khulud, you talked earlier about uh, some of this being part of a, a vicious cycle, if you will. Um, you're on the ground in, in Khartoum. Uh, from your vantage point, I mean, what are other Sudanese saying? Do they believe that an armed conflict is inevitable? Um, the thing is that an armed conflict is always uh, possible, and in fact, it's always likely, precisely because of, of the, the struggle, the power struggle between Bukhan and Hameti that sort of supersedes all of these machinations. The difficulty is that now they both um, are united in resisting the types of controls that Alex spoke about and the types of oversight from the civilians um, um, that we're seeing become part of the conversation. And so they, they come together, we know this very well, they come together when they need to, to resist reforms, to resist um, democratic gains by democratic actors, and then when, um, you know, things don't go their way or when they start to you know, try and really settle into um, taking you know, rights or, or um, arms or money or influence from each other, that's when we see things heating up. And it's those sort of different um, impulses and different dynamics that are playing out that mean that regardless of whether, whether there's a de-escalation or not, there is always a likelihood of a clash. What makes this particular incident interesting in Medawi is that the first time we have seen SAF come out officially, the Sudan Armed Forces, and release a statement at 3 a.m. Um, almost almost um, calling the RSF actions in Medawi an act of war. And that is the type of escalation we haven't seen as yet. And this is what gives the people a lot of anxiety. At the same time, a lot of Sudanese recognize the trend of escalation, of tactical escalation and de-escalation, and they recognize a broader strategy um, to avoid accountability that this falls under. And so you have these two sort of, um, you know, conversations that are happening in Khartoum throughout. Uh, Walid, uh, obviously this all gets a, a bit complex, so I want to try to take a step back for a moment and look more specifically uh, at the rapid support uh, forces. Um, they evolved from militias that had fought in the early 2000s uh, in Darfur. Uh, they are now a complex paramilitary group. I want to ask you, how powerful are they? How well-funded are they? And, and do they operate uh, under their own chain of command? They, they definitely operate under their own chain of command, but uh, they, as I mentioned earlier, they are very much uh, being influenced by the UAE because it is it is the UAE that uh, gave uh, uh, Hameti uh, the, the machinery, the, 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 the money, uh, and, but, but again, these uh, soldiers that are being paid from the Ministry of Finance. They are not being uh, paid by uh, a UAE, so they are exhausting the finances of the country. But uh, more intricately, I, I would want to say that uh, the Hameti the and Burhan, they are recklessly and irresponsibly trying to exploit the ethnic and uh, racial and tribal cleavages, because if you notice in, in their most recent announcement, the army has been calling for the, for the public to come out and support the army. For, for support the army against whom? Against a body that the Burhan himself and the Islamists Islamist groups that uh, that they have uh, brought up to the public. I mean, it is Hameti uh, from. They are the ones who have uh, g given him all the influences and all the support. Burhan more recently gave him 
access to strategic positions in Khartoum. He made him the vice president of the council. Uh, he has been giving him access to the international community. Uh, so if you think of Omar al-Bashir as devilish as he was, he was very powerful in the sense that he was putting the leader of the RSF under his own control. But now the situation has become uncontrollable, and Himeti mm. is taking advantage of the cowardice attitude of Burhan. Alex, um, what kind of diplomatic efforts are currently underway to try to contain all this and to try to de-escalate the tensions? There, are, um, there is a concerted effort. There is um, um, a, a, a troika of uh, multilateral organizations, uh, the United Nations, the African Union, and the um, Intergovernmental Authority on Development, the Northeast African Regional Bloc. The problem with them is that the, um, the UN uh, special representative is essentially a technocrat. He's not a high level a heavy political heavyweight. The African Union leadership has, has succumbed to the lure of transactional politics and is, is really just interested in, 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 in dealing. And, and the same with, with IGAD. They're both extremely weak. Behind the, um, the, the next layer, which is more influential, is a quartet of players. That is the, 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 um, the, the Saudis, the, the Emiratis, the United Kingdom, and, and, and the United States. And their problem is that, that there is no unity. And in fact, a, a key international player, which is Egypt, is not um, fully aligned with them. So they're not unified and there is no overall strategy. The, the, uh, the diplomatic task has been delegated to relatively junior officials who, who, who simply don't have the weight to sort of direct the, um, the regional traffic to get a, a, a coordinated response. This is simply not getting the level of diplomatic attention that it warrants. Uh, Halud, I, I saw you uh, nodding along to some of what uh, Alex was saying there. I mean, do, do you agree uh, w with what he was saying when it comes to uh, the level of, of diplomats that are currently involved in trying to de-escalate tensions? Yes, I mean, it, Alex is right that the, the sort of the political weight that is required both within the Quad countries and within the tripartite mechanism, it has been very uh, glaringly absent. But beyond that, there doesn't seem to be a strategy that, that this fits in, that this fits into. And so, you know, the, the tripartite mechanism and the Quad have been working at trying to get a final agreement uh, signed. Um, but it's this very agreement in the process um, that, that surrounds it that has been part of the problem. This agreement and the, frame, the framework agreement of last year in December effectively codified the power imbalance between Burhan and Hamidi, which gives us these kinds of impulses, which gives us these kinds of flashpoints. And so um, the, you know, the medicine that has been uh, profit, which is the signing of this final agreement, may in fact be worse than the disease, which is this power struggle between the generals. But in any case, there so far has not been enough effort at working out the broader uh, political struggle between Burhan and Hemeti. And so there is a laser focus instead on this political agreement and its process. And um, these kinds of, you know, flashpoints of, of conflict can be treated in an ad hoc way, which is in, by no means helps us to figure out and sort out the broader power struggle. Walid, when it comes to the power struggle and the fact that it's delayed this transition to a planned uh, civilian government, I mean, what happens now when it comes to the timeline of this transition, um, and, and where, does this, where does this leave things right now? 
I think we can compare the situation of Sudan to Libya. I, the, I, I think they, uh, these two leaders, they are trying to prolong the process for as long as they uh, they can, and uh, in, in Libya it has been uh, 12 years, I mean the transitional period. Here they are trying to elongate it in such a way that it may reach uh, 10 years, but that's not the issue. The issue is if uh, should, should the, uh, the two leaders and uh, uh, the Sudanese politicians and the international community go ahead with this agreement. The agreement itself is not sustainable because it's, uh, it's alienating uh, a, a, a big portion of uh, a big majority of the Sudanese people. And uh, if you th think of the forces of freedom and change, the, the very few that they are, uh, that are left now in the process, they don't carry the weight that will make the, the government sustainable. That is one aspect. And the other aspect depends very much on the personality of the uh, prime minister. Even if Burhan Hamidi agreed to the civilian process, the, the personality of the coming prime minister is going to play a, a, a very important uh, role in the process. If, if it happens... Uh, if it happens and they they bring a, a weak uh, personality, then the whole uh, scenario is going to collapse and uh, we're going to mm. go into some sort of a, a civil war. I think the confrontation is inevitable between these two uh, individuals, uh, but, but, but then the outcome uh, may be beneficial to the Sudanese people because uh, we don't know if a third party mm. Uh, a third party can come along and uh, and just uh, try to uh, uh, smash out all, mm. all of this uh, political chaos and uh, military chaos. Khulud, uh, it looked to me like you were reacting to what Walid was saying and that you wanted to jump in, so go ahead. I, I just don't think that this all hinges on who becomes prime minister. That will only follow on from whatever political uh, sort of ecosystem this framework agreement and its resulting process have created. No one person, no matter how capable they are, will be able to combat or even mitigate many of the challenges that we see coming out of this uh, framework uh, agreement process. And, but, you know, leave alone the issue of the generals and the power struggle, which I think we will see for a, a certain, certainly months, if not years to come. The, the issue of this political process is that it has no broad-based political support. And without that, without including the very sort of large um, proportion of Sudanese public that came out against precisely this kind of militaristic politics, without those, the, the people who wanted to do away with, it, with this kind of system and bring in a new one, you're not going to have any politi um, political uh, sort of individual or prime minister who's going to be able to get things done. And that is something that is uh, very much missing from this process. It, this needs a much more concerted um, approach that, that deals with and engages with broader proportions of the Sydney's public who so far have not been um, sort of engaged in this current political process. And Alex, it looked to me like you wanted to jump in as well, so please go ahead. I, I wanted to add one more point and fully in support of, of what both uh, Walid and, and Khalud have been saying, which is that any civilian government, any civilian prime minister who comes in at this stage will have a much weaker hand than Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok had when he um, when he came in some almost four years ago, um, because the the of the relative weakness and division among the democratic 
forces and, and, and the weakness and division of the international engagement. And the key thing, one of the, or one of the key things that unraveled that government was the failure of the international community, especially the United States, to, to step up to the plate and lift sanctions and provide the economic clout, the assistance that would have given real power to the civilian government. And um, there is so little international interest in actually bailing Sudan out of this very, very serious economic crisis that any civilian prime minister is, is, however strong his character, whatever his support on the street is going to have a very weak um, set of cards in his hand to play. Waleed, there are groups like uh, the Forces of Freedom and Change, which is a coalition of pro-democracy parties, that are saying that the ongoing events are the plan of loyalists of the former regime. So I want to ask you, how much does the shadow of former President Omar al-Bashir hang over all of this? I, I believe that the, 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 the old guards, uh, they, they do have uh, influence, but I, I think uh, it's, it's the failure of the democratic forces to provide uh, a futuristic vision for Sudan that is carrying a lot of weight. Uh, do you see, uh, uh, I mean, total uh, lack of leadership, absence of uh, uh, vision, uh, developmental vision for Sudan, and uh, there is uh, a lack of uh, uh, comprehensiveness in the approach of, uh, of, 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 of trying to resolve the situation. Uh, uh, if you look at the agreement itself, it, 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 it's a historical and traditional uh, approach of the Sudanese political elite is they try to avoid uh, the, the critical issues and, and they think that by avoiding these critical issues that they are going to go away by themselves. One of the main issues is uh, the issue of uh, the secular state, it, it hasn't been resolved because you do have Al-Hilu, you do have uh, Abdel Wahid Mohammed Noor, that, that's, a, that's a big uh, group. The, if you think of Al-Hilu, he's occupying a territory that has about 1,400 kilometers with uh, uh, southern Sudan. If you think of Abdel Wahid, uh, his, his army is sort of destabilizing uh, therefore, and causing a lot of uh, uh, t problems there. So the, the issues, the, the critical issues, the issues of the secular state, the issues of the, uh, 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 the ex-regime, uh, uh, Omar al-Bashir, as of now, uh, I mean, he should have been hand handled to the ICC a couple of years ago. They haven't taken any action against him. They haven't taken a, a, any action against uh, the, the criminals of the ex-regime. If you think, mm -hmm. uh, if you think of Burhan, I mean, Burhan could have taken a, a harsh stand against the the, the old guard, uh, the, the ex-regime, uh, but instead he went and embraced them full-heartedly, and by so doing, he lost the, the popularity of the public. It is not that the people are standing mm -hmm. for the forces of freedom and change, but that people are fed up with the indecisiveness, decisiveness of. Burhan and his, in, uh, his inability to take an action. Khulud, um, from your perspective there in Khartoum, I mean, what do you hear from, from Sudanese when it comes to what they want to see happen and what concrete steps they believe need to be taken in order to resolve all of this? I think everyone pretty much knows whose fault this is. 
Uh, I find it particularly uh, peculiar when people say that, you know, it's the civilians and their inability to agree that it's driving all of this. Um, we are literally talking about a military clash between two very heavily armed actors and all for the sake of their own personal gain. This is quite clearly a problem for these military actors and cannot therefore be laid at the, at the feet of um, civilians. Sudan has a very militarized political system. We have to acknowledge that much. And therefore, any solutions to, um, to its political woes have to be um, related to unpicking and dismantling this, um, this, this militarized system. There is room for Sudan armed forces that um, serve the interests of the public and not the interests of a certain group of actors, particularly partisan actors, Islamists, etc. And there is room for um, a, a sort of a level of reform that allows for integration of the RSF into, into staff. But as long as I think we make this uh, a sort of an, an issue of the civilians, we won't really get there. The problem is that this framework agreement of last year has realigned, forced a realignment um, between what was before a, a civilian camp and a military camp. And instead it's given us two camps, one led by Hemeti and one led by Burhan, and within those camps are civilians that could lead the next government. And this means that um, whatever sort of resolutions the civilians come up, or let's just say whatever resolution the two civilian factions um, come up with, cannot be implemented unless the core or central issues between the military patrons that they have are resolved. And we are not anywhere nearer to resolving the problem between the military actors. Um, and therefore, we cannot really find the sort of civilian solutions um, that we've been looking for. This is the folly, I think, of relying on a final agreement um, between the two FFC factions um, um, to sort of steer us through this very difficult period. It's going to require much broader thinking about how to dismantle the militarized state mm. and how to save the Sudan armed forces from these malign axes. And Alex, we just have about one minute left. Let me just ask you real quick. Um, what are the steps that could be taken right now? What are the concrete steps that could be taken in order to help solve this? I think we need a much higher and more robust level of, of global international coordination and diplomacy. Number one, the first absolute priority is to stop an accidental or deliberate escalation into all-out conflict, um, which is quite quite possible. And then back to um, the reconsideration, reframing, using the framework agreement as the basis for, for, for addressing these very knotty problems that we have been discussing. All right. Uh, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Walid Madibo, Khulud Khair, and Alex Duval. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Mohammed Jamjoum, and the whole team here, bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was another report uh, on the developing security crisis inside the Republic of Sudan, where fighting has erupted uh, earlier today uh, between uh, the Rapid Support Forces and uh, the Sudanese Armed Forces. And if you want to continue to follow this story, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more 
of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Falling down so far Well, I'm so glad to see you reach the top I'm glad to see where you are Well, here I am, still on the bottom Looking up at you in the Just a pinch of personality Oh, but I see you made it after Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the music of Rotary Connection with the track entitled Teach Me How to Fly. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 15th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, the two uh, African-American state representatives in Tennessee both uh, have been reinstated over the last week, and uh, the 
final uh, person, uh, Justin Pearson, uh, was uh, re-sworn in uh, just two days ago uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Let's listen to a report on the reinstatement uh, of Justin Pearson and Justin Jones.
All right, it's not it's not final to I adjourn this meeting. So let me let me let me knock it out. Let me knock it out. All right. Uh, I don't think we have any other statements that need to be made. Uh, we are now adjourned until Monday, April 17th, 2023 at 3 p.m. Again, if I have any comment cards, I'm happy to hear them after I bang this gavel. We are adjourned. Welcome back. And uh, that uh, was, of course, uh, Justin Pearson, uh, state representative uh, representing Memphis. Tennessee, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, the state capital, uh, being reinstated uh, as a state representative after being expelled uh, just one week prior to that uh, over a demonstration uh, surrounding uh, the need for gun control legislation in the state of Tennessee. Uh, we'll continue to cover this story. Uh, if you're interested, just go to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal. Motown sound of the Velvetts uh, with the track entitled Lonely Girl Am I, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 15th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And the South African Communist Party held a central committee meeting, augmented central committee meeting uh, last week. And we're going to play uh, some excerpts uh, from the media briefing of the SACP where they discuss uh, their views on the current situation in the Republic of South Africa. 
Just next to me is a member of our Central Committee, Comrade Inyi Kondini. Uh, some of you may know him as the National Secretary of the Young Communist League, uh, the position that he vacated in December last year. Uh, without wasting any further time, I will hand over to the General Secretary to take you through the statement. Uh, Comrade yes. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen, members of the Fourth Estate, and our officials. Just to indicate um, apologies for some of our officials who had thought we would do this press conference yesterday, um, but when we changed the time to today, it affected a number of them with due to prior commitment including our Deputy National Chair, just coming from hosting uh, the DJ of uh, ILO, which is an important uh, assignment uh, in his work. But we are glad that uh, he has joined us, and other members of our Central Committee have joined us. Our Augmented Central Committee statement reads as follows. The SACP held its annual Augmented Central Committee meeting over the weekend of 31st March to 2nd April in Bramfontein, Johannesburg. The meeting included expanded representation from SACP provinces and districts, as well as from the Young Communist League. The Augmented Central Committee was convened to finalize the outstanding task of the Central Committee given by the resolution from the 15th National Congress on State and Popular Power and Electoral Considerations. The meeting was preceded by intensive and robust discussions by the provincial and district structures of the SACP over the last two to three weeks. Assessment of the development uh, in the country and the world was presented by the General Secretary followed by a CC discussion paper titled State Popular and Electoral Consideration Contesting Elections More Effectively With or Without a Reconfigured Alliance. The Augmented Central Committee welcomed and accepted the general thrust of the Augmented Central Committee internal discussion document. The ACC agreed to contest elections with an effective and reconfigured alliance as our preferred modality, as our posture towards the 2024 elections and beyond. By reconfiguration, we mean a common alliance commitment to defend and advance the National Democratic Revolution based on the vision of the Freedom Charter. In addition, we will engage alliance partners for a consensus around the following a common analysis of the socio-economic conditions facing the working class and the poor, followed by a common socio-economic approach program, manifesto development and its joint implementation by an adequately inclusive alliance leadership in parliaments, in provincial legislatures, in cabinets, provincial executive councils, municipal councils, 
and mayoral committees. Conduct of aligned candidates based on common alliance discipline during the campaign, as well as aligned public representatives and office bearers afterwards. Provisions enabling elected SSC representatives to articulate independent perspectives in Parliament, provincial legislators, and municipal councils within the framework of a reconfigured alliance. Accountability of elected alliance representatives, as well as as of SACP members to the party, just as ANC members are expected to be accountable to the ANC and our people. A common approach and binding democratic consensus seeking consultations to coalitions when it becomes necessary to seek coalition partners post-elections on the results of the elections. This is the position of the SACP as we approach the 2024 elections or any by-election. The meeting also agreed that should a satisfactory reconfigured alliance not materialize, the SACP will move towards a popular left front as an electoral modality. Furthermore, on a case-by-case -case basis, the lower structures of the party will make the motivation for the party to stand independently for the by-election. Building a left popular front remains essential, even for purposes not related to contesting elections, for building a powerful socialist movement of workers and poor on the ground and defending and ensuring that our national democratic revolution takes the socialist direction. In the next few weeks and months, our position on contesting elections will be the focus of our engagement within the alliance, with the ANC and COSATU, and by extension to mass organizations of youth, women, civic and religious organizations and so on. We will also engage our communities and the broader organized workers. On the persistent crisis of capitalism in our country, the Augmented Central Committee convened in the context of a deepening crisis of the capitalist system in the country and the world on many fronts. The objective crisis of capitalism in our country have been made possible by the neoliberal restructuring of the economy, failure to discipline capital by government, and privatization and corporatization of state-owned enterprises. We have seen the rising cost of living crisis hitting hard on the workers and the poor. The recent increases of the electricity tariffs by NASA and the repo rates by the African Reserve Bank leading to interest rates high further increase the cost of living of the working class. The Augmented Central Committee was deeply concerned about the South African Reserve Bank Monetary Policy Committee's decision to increase the repo rate once more by 50 basis points in response to rising inflation levels. While the significance of price stability as derived from the first sub-mandate is in no dispute, it is equally important to note that the mandate also dictates that price stability should be maintained in the interest of balanced and sustainable economic growth. Therefore, this decision, which comes at the back of economic growth decline in the fourth quarter of 2022, as reported by South SA, and rising unemployment, can hardly be considered balanced nor sustainable, and in no uncertain terms, 
underscore the SAP's narrow focus on inflation in total disregard of the need to consider economic growth and employment in its monetary policy decision. This punitive decision against the working class and the poor particularly is unlikely to resolve inflation in South Africa as the underlying cause of inflation is not demand-driven and is even induced by conditions beyond our control like the war in Ukraine. By the sub's own admission, the current inflation in South Africa is of a supply-side nature, that is so-called cost-push inflation. The current in rise in prices is fundamentally caused by the crisis of capitalist profitability. The immediate cost includes, among others, rising oil prices, supply-side constraints, load shedding, potential non-competitive behavior in food supply chain and other industries, exchange rate depreciation, and other supply-side effects rooted in capitalist falling profitability. Notwithstanding the fact that since the sub-hiking cycle started towards the end of 2021, the repo rate increased nine times by a cumulative 425 basis points. Inflation, however, remained around the 7% level, averaging around 6.9 in 2022, with the latest increase of 7.0% in February 2023. This may indicate the ineffectiveness of monetary policy to deal with the supply side or cost push inflation. On the demand side, raising interest rates is a blow to the already constrained working class, middle class, as well as lower level middle class and different sections of the businesses, especially SMMEs. This no doubt will further depress the already low consumer spending and thus negatively impact aggregate demand. On the supply side, rising interest rates increase the cost of production as producers face higher borrowing costs. The decision, therefore, to raise policy rates under the current circumstances is likely to make inflation worse while further depressing economic growth. This is a risk for economic phenomenon called stagflation. Thus, for all intents and purposes, the monetary policy path that the SAP is pursuing will indeed most likely reduce inflation by engineering a depression and this will have a devastating impact on the country's economy. As South Africans, we must urgently have an open inclusive discussion about the mandate of the SAP. We need to categorically determine and reach a mutual understanding of what the role of South Africa's bank regarding economic growth and that employment is. When all things are considered, however, it must be recognized that there are many other factors affecting and driving inflation that are beyond the practical control of any central bank. Addressing these factors will reduce the need to use one blunt instrument, in this case the rep rate, to deal with inflation. But monetary and fiscal policy broadly, this crisis cannot be solved now and again by an austere fiscal policy. Neither this crisis can be resolved by a monetary policy that narrowly targets inflation at the expense of balanced economic growth. This will require 
macroeconomic policies that contribute toward economic growth, the transformation of economic ownership and industrial structure through industrialization, which also take advantage of green industrialization to contribute toward a low carbon economy. Dealing with the current situation will require the government to decisively address our inadequate rail infrastructure, aging road networks, and congestions on our roads, which all tend to increase the cost of living and production, and thus negatively impact inflation development. On the immediate challenges of load sharing and energy crisis, the SACP welcomes the introduction of the national state of disaster in electricity, which is already showing positive signs of reducing and eventually ending load shedding. We also welcome the exemption of critical infrastructure such as hospitals and water facilities from load shedding. While the Minister of Electricity must be supported in his responsibilities to deal with the electricity crisis, the SACP reiterates its stance that this crisis must not be used as a ploy to privatize ESCOM, which can only make access to electricity unfavorable and unaffordable to most South Africans. On the contrary, the SACP argues for building ESCOM as a publicly owned enterprise as part of the general program to support industrialization, energy security, and a just energy transition, thereby contributing to energy security, job creation, and structural transformation of the economy. The SACP also calls for a strengthened capacity of the democratic state to respond to and address flood and other disasters. We are quite concerned with the state's inability to respond effectively to disasters that affect the lives and livelihoods of our people through their direct and indirect in impact in places such as KwaZulu-Natal, Eastern Cape and Northwest. The case of the recent of, of, of the collapse of the mining slime dam in Jacket Fontaine in the Free State in September 2022, which emanating from this livelihoods of communities, namely hundreds of houses that were destroyed, together with most and in some instances all people's belongings, life lost and one still missing, livestock lost, all affected by this disaster. To this day, Nearly seven months after the disaster, there has been very little progress despite the declaration of a state of emergency, which should have given power to state authority enabled by the Disaster Act to make appropriate interventions. The SACP further notes with great, great concern the arrogance of the mining bosses who refuse to offer appropriate and fair compensation to communities affected and calls on the government to step up its role to address the disparate situation facing these affected communities. On the new wars of imperialism, the SACP along with, with communists the world over has always called for an end to all wars and for peace in the world. Capitalism on the one hand is fueled by profit logic. It does not want peace, as it has proven to be more profitable during wars, particularly the industrial-military complex that continues to stop wars. 
workers, the poor, and the vulnerable suffer the most in any war. Recently, U.S.-led Western imperialism has become even more arrogant, more aggressive, and greedy. This is leading to more conflict around the world. Imperialists claim to support freedom and democracy, but they are constantly breaking international law and applying it selectively. They isolate and impose sanctions on those who resist their attempts to control the world and even grossly impose their ideas as universal ideas and values of the entire world. But increasingly, these attempts are being resisted. The imperialist unipolar world is becoming a multipolar world through struggles of the working people across the world, including in imperialist capitals and by various states asserting their sovereignty and international order based on international law. SACP welcomes the call made by the General Secretary of the Communist Party of China, President Xi Jinping, for a global civilization initiative. The initiative calls for respect for the diversity of civilization, upholding the common values of humanity in pursuing peace, development, equity, justice, democracy and freedom, and promoting robust international people-to-people -people exchanges and cooperation. To this extent, the SACP will soon hold a high-level bilateral engagement with the Communist Party of China. On the BRICS Summit, the SACP welcomes the coming BRICS Summit, which will be hosted by South Africa on 14 to 22 August 2023. The BRICS countries, namely Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, have a combined 26.7 percent of the world's land surface, a total population of about 3.21 billion, which is 45 percent of the global population, and a combined GDP of US dollars 26.6 trillion, trillion dollars, which is 26.2 percent of the gross wealth product. The existence of BRICS challenges the U.S. and European-dominated unipolar world system. The SACP looks forward to the presence of leaders such as President Xi Jinping, Lula da Silva, and Vladimir Putin. And the SACP, together with other progressive organizations, will organize public events and programs in support of progressive ideas at the summit. We will build people-to-people -people relationships and show solidarity with the countries building a new inclusive world order based on cooperation, multilateralism, and respect for each other's sovereignty and independence. On the ICC arrest warrant for President Putin, we say, down with judicial imperialism. The SACP rejects the arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court based in The Hague, Netherlands. The arrest warrant, based on frivolous charges, comes on the eve of an important proposal for peace in Ukraine by President Xi Jinping during his state visit to Russia and the BRICS summit due to be hosted in South Africa. The International Criminal Court was established by, to try individuals charged with the gravest crimes of concern in the international community, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. 
Unfortunately, imperialist powers continue to manipulate this multilateral institution and use it for judicial imperialism. Despite many calls and ample evidence, the ICC has consistently refused to charge the likes of Netanyahu of Israel, Bush, Clinton of America and Obama, Blair of Britain, who have destroyed countries and killed hundreds of thousands of people in Palestine, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Yugoslavia, to name just but a few, and continued occupation of other countries' territories like in Syria, Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, and of the Korean Peninsula. This ones, the ICC never say, here are charges for you. They walk freely. Letting you was even in Britain just last week. The SACP calls upon the African government to ensure that President Putin attends the BRIC summit and that is afforded safe passage. Furthermore, the SACP calls upon the government to act with speed in withdrawing from the ICC and repealing the implementation of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court Act 27 of 2002. On Africa Cuba Solidarity Conference, the SACP support the convening of an Africa Cuba Solidarity Conference later this year, together with, with our allies. This is an important initiative to bring progressive forces from across the African continent together in united action in solidarity with the people of, of Cuba, a country that has given so much to the world and received less in return, a country that remains the torchbearer of the future of humanity as they resist imperialism and endure tremendous hardship due to a crippling and unjust economic blockade imposed by the USA for over 60 years. No country has been punished this much for so long by another country. I think followed by North Korea. These two countries have really received severe punishments by unilateral action in the main of the United States. And we say this must come to an end. On Western Sahara, the SACP notes new aggressive military action and hostilities from Morocco into Western Sahara. Further build order of further the building of a dividing apartheid wall of over 2,000 kilometers, even in the occupied territory of Western Sahara. We reaffirm our unflinching solidarity with the peoples of Western Sahara and Polisario France and further express our deep gratitude to the people and government of Algeria for the continued principled support of the Sahrawi people and their just struggle for national independence. Don't leave Algeria. Don't leave. We call on the AU and the United Nations to speed up the process towards the self towards the self-determination of the Sahrawi people. We further applaud the important political position of the South African government on their solidarity with the people of Western Sahara. Long live South Africa. On the situation in Swaziland, the SACP condemned the continued line of terror against the people of Swaziland by a ruthless monarchy determined to resist a democratic transition at all costs. Of particular concern 
is the use of South Africans-based mercenaries to assassinate political opponents of the regime. We condemn the brutal assassination of Comrade Advocate Tulani Maseko, the chairperson of the multi-party stakeholder forum, negotiating the transitional conditions uh, in Eswatini with SADC and the Eswatini government. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Saleh Apela, uh, the Secretary General of the South African Communist Party, uh, delivering a briefing on uh, the uh, recently augmented Central Committee meeting of uh, the South African Communist Party. That's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for uh, today, uh, which is Saturday, April 15th. 2023, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to today's program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you would like to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out our program with the music of John Coltrane uh, from the album entitled Jupiter Variation uh, in honor of the current uh, space mission to Jupiter. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.